you got your Bibles, flip over to Mark chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 29 this morning. Several years ago, a news reporter uh, was trying to, wanting to cover some local wildfires and was trying to climb the ladder and when he needed to get approval for wanting to do a flyover of where some of the fires were and needed the authorization to charter a plane, finally got cleared, called the local airport. They assured him, you'll have a plane ready on the tarmac for you um, whenever you arrive. Hurried as fast as he could, got to the airport, jumped out of his car, grabs his bags, his cameras, runs to the, through the airport, gets to the plane, jumps in, slows the door, says, let's go. To which the pilot taxis out, takes off. And as he's flying away from the airport, the reporter says, hey, fly over the valley and go low over the hills so we can get some good shots of the fires. To which the pilot asked, why? And because I'm a reporter and you're flying me to cover the wildfires. To this awkward silence, the pilot stammered, um, so what you're telling me is you're not my flight instructor? <laughs> if we're not careful in life, we find what we are looking for, right? Right? We, whatever we think we see is we determine it is what I think it is. And so this guy shows up at the airport, sees his plane and goes, I'm looking for the plane. That's the plane. It's going to fly me. It was not what he was looking for. It's what he thought he was looking for, but he wasn't looking for the right thing. This week, as we continue our study in the book of Mark, we're going to see a theme in these next couple of verses where people are looking for Jesus. And my question for us this morning is, what Jesus are you looking for? What is it exactly you're looking for Jesus to do? Who exactly are you looking for Jesus to be? Because if we're not careful, when we open God's word and we look at the gospel of Mark, what can be very easy, a very easy thing to do is to look for and make Jesus who we want him to be. And the reality is Jesus didn't come to be who you and I want him to be. He came to be who he knew that we would need. And so this morning, as we see others looking for Jesus, I want us to look inward and think about how and what ways we're looking for Jesus. And then I want us to step back and go, wait a second. Am I looking for the real Jesus or am I looking for a Jesus that I've made up? If you've got your Bibles, we're gonna, in verse 29, we'll pick up. If you remember from last week, we just, verse 29 is going to pick up right on the heels of where Jesus was in the synagogue. He was teaching the people were astonished at his teaching. His teaching had authority. This was different than anything they'd heard. And on top of that, he casts out a demon. And then people are like, now this is just nuts. This is crazy. And his fame begins to spread. But that, right after that, and literally verse 29 starts with a word that we've seen repeatedly in this first chapter. Verse 29 starts with, and immediately he, Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, immediately he leaves the synagogue. He goes to this house. This house, interestingly, we think we know where it is. I think I have some pictures here. Um, this is present-day Capernaum, right there on the Sea of Galilee, as you can see on the left. Some ruins here, some ruins on the right. If you look on the right picture, the larger structure with the columns was believed to be the location of the synagogue that Jesus cast out the demon in. 
And if you go to kind of the octagonal shape there to the left, that is believed to be underneath that was where Peter's house actually was. And there's a lot of uh, research that have been done to validate that. Then there's a house and then the house became a church and then another church. And, but we believe that that was actually the house that Peter went to. So when Jesus immediately leaves the synagogue and goes to this house, he's not going to some made up place. He's going to that house and he's going, you can see right across the street from the synagogue. This is Peter's mother-in-law's house or his mother-in-law is sick, which if he has a mother-in-law, what does that mean about Peter? He's married. He has a wife. And just for the record, when you can have Jesus come to your house to heal your mother-in-law, I think that puts you pretty high on the list of best son-in-laws, don't you think? I mean, I'm guessing he could use that for a long time to his advantage. Jesus comes here, and this is when we see the first healing of Jesus. Last time we saw Jesus cast out a demon, but here he's demonstrating his authority and power over evil and over the demons and over the other worlds. This time he's healing a sickness. He's healing something right in front of the people, something seemingly simple, but something very significant. And when Jesus heals right off the bat, and we're going to see it touched on, highlighted and called out later on. It just kind of mentioned here matter of factly, but you and I wouldn't pick up on the fact that Jesus violates three rules, three rules right off the bat. One, he touches a woman. You didn't touch a woman who wasn't your wife. Two, you touched a sick person. You don't touch sick people. And number three, he heals on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. So right up front, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm coming to bend and break some of the cultural norms that you have taken and abused in which to things seemingly look like and sound like things that I want, but they're not. And what also is revealed here is a pattern in Jesus's miracles. Notice as we go through Mark, we're going to see again and again, Jesus heals multiple people, but this is a pattern in which in the way in which he heals them, he's going to touch the heal, he's going to touch the person. There's going to be an immediate cure and there's going to be action by the cure demonstrating the fact that they are healed. I don't know about you, but if you've had the flu, was there ever a moment when you're like, ah, I'm better? Or was it a slow progression? Like days, right? You're trying to get your health, your, your strength back. And you're like, man, I'm just, I just can't get over it. I'm not, over, not having, I don't feel all the way better. This is one, and again, one, this time and other times, there's evidence when Jesus heals, it's not like a, well, that could have been him or it could have been something else. It's an immediate, it's pointing to his power and the fact that healing came because of him. And what's her response? Her response we see is then she immediately got up to serve them. It's the same words that are used to describe the angels and how they met the needs of Jesus back in the earlier in chapter one. The response of those who have been healed throughout scripture is always to say, what can I do for you, Jesus? The proper response for anyone who encounters Jesus is to say, how can I serve you with what I have? What does she have? She had a home, she had a food, she had a place. That's what she offered when Jesus moves, when Jesus acts, when Jesus intersects and transforms our lives, the right, proper response is always service to him. Check out verse 32. That evening as the sun, uh, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I've always read this and you kind of wonder like, okay, immediately Jesus left the synagogue to go to the house, but it wasn't until that night that these people came. Well, there's a reason why they didn't come at night. It was the Sabbath. They couldn't come to the house until evening when the Sabbath was over. And so they experienced Jesus, hear his teaching, see the demon cast out in the synagogue. Everyone goes home and is like, oh my gosh, can you believe what just happened? 
can you, did, you, did you see what I heard? Did you hear what I hear? Did you see what I saw? And then it, we got to get the word out. And literally at night, the sun goes down and you see like ever um, in your house, you have little kids and you hear like the pitter patter up top. I mean, it's like, you can just sit the whole town. It's like, like all around the house, right? They're coming to Jesus. Why? Because if you can do that, what could you do with these problems that we have? They bring their sick. They deem their de- bring their demon possessed and Jesus heals and casts out. It says he heals many. It doesn't mean that there was only he couldn't heal everyone or he didn't heal everyone. It just means he healed a lot. Everyone who came, there was lots and lots of people that he was healing. Mark's fast-paced style, it's easy for us to hear this story and to know the story and to gloss over the reality of the story. Can you imagine for a second? Those of you that have been sick, those of you that have battled illnesses, for extended periods of time, had chronic issues. Can you imagine what would happen if that was just gone? In those days, there was not medicine, there wasn't doctors, and so every little thing could easily become a big thing, and there weren't remedies. Just imagine your friends, your families, you know this person has been struggling and hurting and in pain and, and for years, and then one after another, these people are, are made whole. They're, made, they're healed. Can you imagine the excitement, the enthusiasm that must have been permeating that space? You see, Mark is intentionally showing us right off the bat that Jesus is coming not to bring something new. He's coming. He's coming because he wants to make right what went wrong. As Nate mentioned earlier, our students are up at Winter Freeze, and I got to hang out with them Friday night and yesterday. And the theme that they're living in is this idea of this upside down. And what's crazy is the thought occurred to me last night was this. You and I have never experienced the world right side up. Think about that. The best moments of your life aren't even what God intended. They get their glimpses of it. They're glimmers of it. There's these tastes of it. And we're like, yes, I was made for that. But the reality is you and I have never lived in a world that was right side up. Because since Genesis 3, the world was flipped upside down. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, the reason these these healings and these casting out the demons is Jesus coming back, sending a signal. There's tremors going throughout the universe that, hey, what was broken and what has been turned upside down is going to be made right. Sickness. Sickness is a result of the fall. Demon possession is a result of authority that's been given to Satan that he one day will not have. When Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I'm coming to push back darkness. I'm coming to take back strongholds. And he's, as he demonstrates his power through these healings and these demons being passed out, you see little by little the world being turned right side up. With our students this weekend, such a powerful truth because our world looks at us as we try to hold out the gospel and point to what Jesus has said is right and true. Our world goes, that's so backwards. But the reality is it's not backwards. It's exactly what God intended from the beginning. It's the world that's flipped it upside down. What a message and what a reminder for us. One, to be reminded of your reality. You're living in an upside down world. So when the gospel sounds countercultural, it is. Because it's seeing the world right side up in a world that's living upside down. 
I don't know what it looks like to you to turn the world upside down. But I'm guessing and I believe that God wants to use you to be a part of his right side up ministry. Sometimes you get glimpses of it. Little steps leading to significant things. Friday night at Winter Freeze, I was looking around and realized that this was the 12th year that Sanctuary has done Winter Freeze, which is significant this year because 12, most of the sixth graders aren't yet 12, which means most of the sixth graders that are there, my daughter being one of them, was not born when Winter Freeze started. And what they're experiencing is what many, many people have poured time, effort, energy to over the years, built into, invested into, that now they can experience. That's what an upside down world, that's how an upside down world gets turned right side up, is when people faithfully answer the call that Jesus has for them, taking the one step, the one place, doing the one thing that God puts in front of them today. All of these people come to Jesus, not because they want the world turned right side up, but because they just want to get healed, because they just want to be made whole. Question for you today is what do you come to Jesus for? What, what do you come to Jesus seeking, wanting, desiring? Because what's interesting is earlier in that day, the people were astonished at his teaching, but we don't see anybody coming this evening to hear his teaching. They want his healing. There's nothing wrong with wanting Jesus' healing, but it's not just healing that Jesus desired to bring. Think about this. Think about the buzz must have been going on with the disciples that night once the last person's healed once ever I mean literally it's like open looking out the door like anybody else nope okay okay we healed everyone Jesus there's no one else to heal they're going to bed and can you imagine they're thinking like I mean today started kind of ordinary we then went to synagogue that seemed ordinary but then you started teaching that definitely wasn't ordinary then you cast out a demon and that never been done before and then you healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law well that hadn't been done before and then everybody came you're healing everybody casting out all these demons so Jesus we can't wait for tomorrow and Jesus is probably thinking yeah tomorrow's going to be a little different a little different than you thought check out verse 35 And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. I don't know when you find yourself praying, but for me, it's not on the mountaintops. A day like Jesus had there, it wouldn't be that next morning. Because that morning I would say, well, today, based on what happened yesterday, I don't need to set an alarm today. We're going to sleep in. We're going to rest a little bit. There's nothing to jump into. We can, we can take it easy. But we find Jesus praying when things are going well. Because it's when things are going well that Jesus knows he needs direction. He needs to reorient his priorities to make sure he stays in step with what the Father desires him to do. Mark, interestingly, references Peter praying three times in his gospel. One, we just saw here in verse 35, um, where he talks about him getting up early while it was still dark and going to a desolate place where he prayed. Another time, the second time Mark points to him praying is Mark 6.46. After he'd taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. 6.46 happens after Jesus has fed the 4,000, had a miraculous day, puts the disciples in a boat and sends them across the Sea of Galilee. That point he goes and prays. Mark 14, 35, 36 says, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, an hour might pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, 
but what you will. Three times, Mark points to Jesus praying. Three times, Jesus is at a point in his ministry where everything is going great. And there is a choice to do the easier thing or to do the right thing. And it's in this space, this space that we find Jesus dependent on his father. I think there's a great encouragement for us in this. When we look at how Jesus prayed and what we learn from Jesus praying, first, he prioritizes the time. I love Mark. It's like, in case you didn't miss it, in case you missed it, he was rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Like, how early? Well, like 1030. That's early. No, it's not early. Early is when it's dark. That's when Jesus got up. He prioritized the time. He said, this is what's most important to me. I've got to get with my father. And second, he escaped the noise. He got away. When it talks about him going to a desolate place, it's the same word that we've seen so far in the uh, first chapter of Mark, pointing to the desert. It's where John the Baptist was. It's where Jesus was tempted by Satan. It's the place devoid of life. It's the place that's silent. It's the place that's away from the noise, prioritizing the time, escaping the noise. And lastly, he reorients his priorities. It's in this space that he's able to listen. He's able to receive. He's able to consider what has been happening, what God wants him to do next, which direction to go. Jesus gives us a great reminder that we are called into both inward and outward work. We cannot simply be about the work of God out here without attending to the work of God in here. Jesus shows us that the inward ways always come before the outward. It's not out of legalistic rules or obligations, but motivated out of a relationship. In Christian circles, we talk about our quiet time with God, right? It's something we all are supposed to do. It's something that is expected. It's something that if we're honest, as I talk about quiet time, as I talk about praying, as I talk about prioritizing, as I talk about spending time with him, there's probably a twinge of guilt for some of you where you're like, ah, yeah, this, uh, this week wasn't really that good for me. That is not the desire of our father to obligate us or to guilt us into spending time with him. He wants us to be motivated by spending time with him out of a desire for a relationship with him. And here's what's crazy. The relationship is about more than just you. Years ago, I read a book, a little book. And when I say little, I mean really little. Um, My Heart, Christ's Home. Like this is a book you can literally read in one sitting. And the premise of the book is that as when we become a believer, when we trust Christ We invite him into our life and our life is like a house and our life has different compartments. And if we're not careful, we segment out different compartments and we say, well, God, you can have this and this, but not that. And uh, you can come here, but don't mess up this room and don't, don't, don't mess up this hobby or don't mess up this desire or this thing that I have. Instead, my heart, my Christ home, the premise is I want to give my whole life, my whole house to, to God. And what, one of the, the, the rooms, when I read it, was absolutely transformative for me years ago. Because it completely changed how I view this thing called quiet time or spending time with God. And I trust that as I read this, it would encourage you, maybe challenge you, and hopefully invite you into something more. We move next into the living room. This was a quiet, comfortable room with a warm atmosphere. I liked it. It had a fireplace, sofa, overstuffed chairs, a bookcase, 
in an intimate atmosphere. He also, Jesus, also seemed pleased with it. He said, indeed, this is a delightful room. Let's come here often. It's secluded and quiet, and we can have good talks in fellowship together. Well, naturally, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I couldn't think of anything I would rather do than have a few minutes alone with Christ in close companionship. He promised, I will be here every morning early. Meet me here, and we will start the day together. So morning after morning, I would go downstairs to the living room. He'd take a book of the Bible from the bookcase, open it, and we would read it together. He would unfold it to me, unfold to me the wonder of God's saving truth recorded on its pages and make my heart sing as he shared all he had done for me and would be to me. Those times together were wonderful. Through the Bible and his Holy Spirit, he would talk to me. In prayer, I would respond so our friendship deepened in those quiet times of personal conversation. However, under the pressure of many responsibilities, little by little, this time began to be shortened. Why, I'm not sure. Somehow, I assumed I was just too busy to give special regular time to be with Christ. This is not a deliberate decision. You understand it? It just seems to happen that way. Eventually, not only was the period shortened, but I began to miss days now and then, such as during midterms or finals. Matters of urgency demanding my attention were continually crowding out the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. Often, I would miss it two days in a row or more. One morning, I recall rushing down the steps in a hurry to be on my way to an appointment. As I passed the living room, the door was open. Glancing in, I saw a fire in the fireplace and Jesus sitting there. Suddenly, in dismay, it came to me. He's my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as my savior and friend to live with me, yet here I am neglecting him. I stopped and turned and hesitantly went in. With downcast glance, I said, Master, I'm sorry. Have you been here every morning? Yes, he said. I told you I'd be here to meet with you. I was even more ashamed. He had been faithful in spite of my faithlessness. I asked him to forgive me, and he did, as he always does when we acknowledge our failures and want to do the right thing. He said this, and don't miss this. The trouble is that you have been thinking of the quiet time of Bible study and prayer as a means for your own spiritual growth. This is true, but you have forgotten that this time means something to me also. Remember, I love you, and at great cost, I have redeemed you. I value your fellowship. Just to have you look up into my face warms my heart. Don't neglect this hour if only for my sake. Whether or not you want to be with me, remember, I want to be with you. I really love you. I can remember reading that years ago and it just being like, oh, it's not, it's not just for me. Like, God actually wants to spend time with me. Like, as good, he knows it's good for me. You could make it all one-sided and it would be 100% right. But the reality is we have a God who desires a relationship with us. A God who's waiting, a God who's made time and is available. And a God who, when Jesus prayed for the first time, addresses God as Father, signaling to us that our God loves us and desires and longs to spend time with us. And so when we see Jesus getting up early, 
of all people who did, wouldn't need that, he, he showed us that he needed it. And I believe showed us that he needed it because he wanted us to believe and understand that we need it above all else. And if it can drive Jesus to get up early to go out to the desert, my, I wonder what it would drive you to this week. What does it look like to prioritize the time? What does it look like to, get, to silence the noise, to get away from the noise? And what does it look like to reorient your priorities? I don't know what that looks like for you, but my invitation for us would be, can you make that happen this week? Recognizing that God is waiting in that space for you. If you don't have a plan, if you don't have something to do, there's plenty of devotionals out there. I would invite you to join us in the Bible reading we've jumped into together as a church. You can look on our website. You can look on the app. It's a couple chapters a day, just reading through the Bible together as we go. Now, fair warning, um, there's only, we've already through three books of the Bible. And for you, you might go, well, I've already, it's too late. I've already missed three books. Well, whose argument does that sound like? Like, I think that's what the enemy would see, use you to tell you, you shouldn't read the other 63 books because you've already missed the first three. Wrong. Jump in now at any point and join us as we journey through this. But here's the deal. Fair warning, this week we are jumping into Leviticus. And so uh, that might be penance for not starting earlier. I don't know. You take that up with God in your time with him. But um, we are jumping into Leviticus this week, and it will be interesting, um, to say the least. Jesus jumps out, gets up early. He goes to pray. And if an enemy wants to anything more than to separate us from the God, he's going to do it with our time with him, making it more of a religion than a relationship. But it's not just the enemy that goes after that relationship. Well-meaning friends can actually get confused and become people who pull us away from that relationship. Check out verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Now, searched is a very mild term. This is a much stronger meaning of essentially uh, Simon and those who were with him put on a manhunt. I mean, it's like every avenue. I mean, your picture, a parent's lost their kid at Disney World. I think that's Peter when he wakes up in the morning, excited about what's going to be next with Jesus and finds his bed empty and they can't find him anywhere. They're searching everywhere. And look at what they do. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Like, I think there was a little bit of a, uh, of a tone there, probably. Like, everyone's looking for you, and it's your fault. This is not a game of hide-and-seek, Jesus, not funny. Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus' response was, oh, man, I missed it. Let's run back. Got to get back to what we need to do. No, verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Everyone's looking for Jesus because he's got something that they need. But what they're looking for is not what Jesus came for, which is why once again, he's gonna shift. He's gonna lead the crowd, leave the crowds and to continue doing what he's come for. If you remember verse 15 of chapter one, Jesus announced the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It was clear he came to preach. He came to give the good news. He came to bring life. Healing was all a part of that plan, but it was to point to the message he came to proclaim. Therefore, at this point, he pivots away from the crowd to continue his preaching ministry. Jesus refuses to be sought out as a mere miracle worker. He wants 
and will need to be recognized as a savior. So he continues to preach the good news of the gospel. Check out verse 40. Not the same day, a different day. So we've just concluded a day in the life of Jesus, which if you think, and I think we have busy days and we think Jesus was some stoic person sitting on the side, meditating all day. You just look at chapter one and Mark and you get a pretty good feel for the pace of Jesus's life. Probably a lot like yours and mine. This is a different day. And in verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling to him, uh, said to him, if you will come, will you make me clean? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and made him, said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. If you've read much of the Bible, you probably have heard the term leprosy. You're probably aware leprosy was a dangerous disease in those days because there was no cure. It was actually more than just a disease. It was kind of became a bucket for any type of skin disease, anything that was deemed contagious. Leprosy itself would literally eat your fingers and toes, would eat at your nerve endings, extremely painful with no cure. It was, it was assured that you would ultimately die. And before you died, we'll make sure you go ahead and personally die by pushing you outside of our community because you cannot be near anyone and you could not live anywhere near a city. Rules in those days were actually, if you were a leper, you couldn't come within a hundred cubits, which is about 150 feet of anybody else if the wind was blowing behind you. And you could be within four cubits if you were downwind of someone. I don't know how that math works, but when I did the math and calculated four cubits is actually six feet, I realized they had social distancing back here way before 2020. <laughs> this guy can't come near anybody, so this guy risks everything. For a leper to come near someone within those restrictions could have meant immediate death. But he's desperate, and he comes to Jesus. Leprosy brought anguish at all levels, physical, mental, social, and religious. It affected everything. And you can think, if you read through here, Jesus is healing, casting out a demon. He's healing uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He's then healing other people, casting out more demons. So this is just another healing. This is a different healing. This is communicating a whole lot more. And there's a reason why I believe Mark sets it off and makes it separate because he doesn't want you to miss the significance of this. All the other people have been living their lives inconvenienced by sickness or disability or demons, but they've been going about their business. This guy, this guy had no life. Like his disease affected everything. So much so it, everyone knew it affected everything and he had no family, no friends, could live near nobody, had to be in the desolate places we've heard about so far in Mark chapter one. Leprosy was understood. There was no cure. There's two instances of leprosy in the Old Testament. One, if you remember, Aaron is arguing with Moses and kind of challenging his authority and God strikes him with leprosy. It's terrifying because that would mean ultimate death. God heals him. Another instance of leprosy in the Old Testament, if you remember Elisha, there's Nahum is the commander of the Assyrian armies. 
and they've conquered an area and they brought a Jewish uh, servant girl there. And when he gets sick with leprosy, the king finds out, he finds out from a servant girl that there's this guy, this prophet in Israel that can actually probably do something about this. And so the king of Assyria sends a letter to the king of Israel and the king of Israel's response is telling. It tells you that there was nothing that could be done because in 2 Kings 5 verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, basically asking, hey, heal my, heal my servant, please. He tore his clothes and said, I am, am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? The king's response is like, don't you know? Only God can cure leprosy. There is no cure. There's no way I can do this. So don't ask me and then get mad at me that I can't do what you've asked because what you're asking is impossible because only God could do it. So when we fast forward and we get to Mark and Jesus heals a leper, it is a direct, once again, reference to his divinity. Later, rabbinic literature suggested that skin diseases like leprosy were more difficult to get rid of than raising the dead. It was understood this was impossible. So what does Jesus do? He touches him. Let's the guy come near and touches him. Now, when you look at the request, do you notice anything unique about what the leper asks for? He doesn't ask to be healed. What does he ask for? He asks, he's asked to be made clean. Because he knew that what I really want, what I really desire is to be made clean. Because if I'm made clean, if I can go to the, the temple, if I can go to the synagogue, if I can get the priest to tell me I'm clean, guess what? I get my life back. Like I can go back to my family. I can go back to my job. I can come back to the city. I can come back to church. I can have my life. Because the reality is the difference between me living like this, which is not really living and experiencing life again, is I have to be declared clean. I don't know about you, but the way this leprosy is described and how it impacts every facet of life sounds an awful lot like another disease that affects every single one of us called sin. It wreaks havoc on everything. And when Jesus shows up, he knows, like, I can heal your sick. But what I really have come to do is to make you clean from sin. What I've really come to do is to make you clean so you can have your life back. Jesus, in verse 43, sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. We'll get to that. Jesus tells him not to tell anybody. We'll get to that in a second. But I think there's a second layer. There's a second narrative that's going on here I don't want to miss. I love, I love how subversive Jesus is. We picture him meek and mild. Like I can see him with a twinkle in his eye, knowing how he's turning people's worlds upside down. And look at what he's doing here. He sends this leper to the priest. 
the priest is going to have to declare him clean because he's going to have everything's in order. Like, yes, you're healed. I, I don't know how, I don't know why, but the reality is I can't say you're not clean because you are in fact clean. Well, then what does that mean the priest has to do with Jesus? Well, if, if the guy who has been healed is now clean, then what does that say about the healer? Exactly. He's going to have to believe in the healer. And then what's going to unfold in the rest of Mark is you're going to see opposition come to Jesus and it's going to be the religious leaders saying, what are we going to do with Jesus? And here Jesus is going, well, you said my work is good, but you don't recognize me. How often, how often do we see the things of God around us and look right past the God who's behind those things, the God who's orchestrating those things because we're looking for something else. In the first chapter of Mark, we've seen a lot of people looking for Jesus. We've seen a lot of people for years longing and looking for the Messiah. And they're missing the Messiah that shows up right in front of them. The leper is asking for more than healing. He wants to be made clean. And he's made clean with a touch by Jesus. And for the first time, a clean person touches an unclean person and the unclean person gets clean while the clean person is unaffected. That doesn't happen. Remember Peter's words? When they're in the, in the desert, they're looking for Jesus. What does he say? Everyone's looking for you. And I think that is true then and that's true now. Whether you think you are or not, everyone is looking for Jesus because hardwired into every single one of us, it is a desire to be known by our creator. And so if you may not think you're looking for Jesus, what you think you're looking for is actually something in place of Jesus. Ultimately, every single one of us is looking for Jesus. And interestingly, in Mark's gospel, the term looking for is actually a negative term. Every time it's used, every time it's referenced, it's people looking for something other than Jesus, people looking for something of Jesus, people looking for something that Jesus isn't, people looking for a way to kill Jesus. And ultimately, Mark's gospel is going to conclude with a woman at the tomb looking for Jesus. And the angel is going to say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You're looking in the wrong place. Jesus came not to be the Jesus that we want him to be. He came to be the Jesus we need. And therefore, a lot of times we're looking for Jesus in the wrong places, in the wrong ways. And the invitation that Jesus gives us is to see him for who he is. He's here to give life. He's here to push back darkness. He's here to disarm the evil powers of this world. He's here to obliterate strongholds. He's here to restore relationships, to heal broken marriages. He's here to bring heaven to earth. And here's what's crazy, and we'll end with this. Did you pick up the end of verse 45? Because it's going to tell us where we're going to find Jesus. The end of verse 45, it says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places. Jesus, in healing the leper, switched places with the leper. Leper that was in the desolate places, that was in the desert places, that, that couldn't come into the city, could now come in this city, could now live with his family, could now be a part of the social world that he long missed. But Jesus, on the other hand, who one who could go anywhere, was now forced to be in the outside of the city. He was now in the desolate places. Jesus has come, and we will find Jesus in a place, in the place where we should have been. Which is why at the end of Jesus' gospel, the miracle worker is led outside the city. 
he's led to the unclean place where he takes on our uncleanliness, our sin, our filth, so that we could walk free, so that we could be alive. The clean became unclean so that you and I could be proclaimed clean, so that a God, a distant God, could come and say, I want to be your father. I'm waiting in the living room for you because I want to know you. I want you to know me. I want you to spend time with me. And if you're looking for Jesus, the real Jesus, the real Jesus went to a cross. The real Jesus is hanging in your place, in my place. And because of that, he's saying, you are clean. So much more than fixing the trivial issues and problems of your world, I've made you clean before a holy God so that you can have life and have it to the full. So my question and invitation this morning is this. What are you looking for? And the answer to that question is Jesus. So would you experience the hope, the life, the love, and the healing that only he can bring? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gospel of Mark once again, giving us such a clear picture of a Jesus of a Jesus who modeled for us what it looked like to be in relationship with his heavenly father who cared and had compassion on those who were hurting, who was willing to trade places with those who were so less fortunate than him, including us here today. So God, as we end worshiping this morning, God, I pray that we would praise you because we are not unclean. God, you've made us clean. You've made a way for us to be holy You've made a way for us to be right with God. And so this morning, if there's anybody here this morning that has not been made clean, that hasn't experienced the Jesus who went to the cross on your behalf to take your place, to take your sin, to give you his life, God, I pray that you'd work in their hearts and allow them to see that they're looking for you. And God, may this be the day that they find you. For the rest of us, God, we come before you simply to worship you for who you are and what you've done. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.